Thank you guys so much, and that took a lot of work, and it was, it was fun, so thank you for doing it. Thank you. And you don't have to stay up here the whole time now, but I'm up here. Yeah. <laughs> you bet. So we had a little music appreciation uh, today. Uh, so we heard from the Carpenters, right? Uh, that was the first song. Then we heard uh, from Chicago. We gave that one away. Uh, so two bands you might come up with, with that, uh, I'm a believer. Who knows one of them? Monkeys? Who? Oh, Neil Simon wrote it? Neil Diamond wrote it. Oh, that's cool. And then what's the band that uh, covered it for Shrek? Smath Mouth, very good. And finally, Let It Be, who wrote that? Uh, best, band, best band ever, did somebody just say that? Just to be clear, you too, it's the best band ever. All right. All right, glad we're on the same page. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Well, I'm so glad you're here today, uh, especially this Thanksgiving week. Hopefully, by the end of the day, you'll be feeling a little bit better uh, about your week and even have some tools uh, that will help uh, Thanksgiving be even more thanks, thankiness than, uh, than, than not. So, November 1, 2010, All Saints Day, was a day that will live on in Giants fans' memory for eternity. You remember the scene. It's in the evening. The Giants are playing the Texas Rangers. The final pitch, the torturous pitch delivered by Brian Wilson goes over the plate. It's a strike. And immediately, what happens? Buster Posey sprints and gives a huge bear hug to Brian Wilson as they won their first world championship since moving to San Francisco. Are we excited about that, people? Yes. Now, I know there were enough fans in uh, Rangers Stadium that they made noise, so it wasn't booze or anything like that. Uh, but even in my neighborhood, uh, you could hear as soon as that final pitch happened, uh, you could hear pots and pans outside. You could hear people shouting for joy. You could hear car horns a honking. Uh, you know, I could hear Lauren Haas screaming from 15 miles away. Uh, he was one of the first people I texted just to capture the moment because he's the, probably the biggest Giants fan I know, followed closely by my wife. Uh, I could hear sobbing coming from the Pruch household. Uh, <laughs> at least one of them <laughs> because he's a Dodgers fan. But you're still welcome here, CJ. You're still welcome here. So that was a great day. Uh, of course, 2012, 2016, uh, 14 uh, were also great times with their own story, but there's nothing like that, that first clinch. 2015, Golden State Warriors. Uh, not expected to go far against the Cleveland Cavaliers because we didn't have any bigs on our team. But we had the Splash Brothers, Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, uh, who did their thing. The MVP of that whole series was uh, Andre Iguodala, the best-dressed man in the NBA, maybe the world, all right? Uh, and, of course, we had the timid, soft-spoken Draymond Green, uh, who was also... <laughs> And we took it, and the same thing happened. As soon as, soon as that, uh, the clock ran out and we, we won, you could hear neighborhoods, the whole Bay Area, uh, just whooping it up. Now, you could be home alone, and it would have been fun, uh, if you're a fan, uh, to watch these games uh, roll out the way that they did. But there was something about uh, being in this thing together. 
there's something that happens, an energy that happens. Uh, last year, um, it was last year, right? The Warriors won uh, again? Yeah. And uh, Lynn and I were heading back in uh, to the city, and the Bay Bridge was absolutely a parking lot. And it was, nobody was grumpy about it. There were car horns honking on the bridge, uh, got into the city, and the place was just alive because there was so much excitement. Something happens when we're celebrating together. It's like the synergistic thing where the energy is bigger than the sum of its parts. It's remarkable. Now, church is kind of like that. It's supposed to be like that, where there's something bigger happening than it would happen just for us on our own. And so it's kind of a challenge because uh, for however many people show up uh, here live on campus, we have about just as many people that are listening in online in one way or another. And the challenge of that, I'm speaking to you podcasters and streamers, uh, the challenge then for you is how do we capture that, that community aspect of it because that's where the magic is, that's where the energy is, that's where the sense of compassion uh, is taken to a much greater level. And this showed up in the early church. Uh, so. At the Pentecost feast, uh, which we'll talk a little about, uh, there was a different kind of community that was forming. This shows up in the second chapter of Acts toward the end. This is after uh, this kind of wild thing happens where a large group of people experience together uh, the Spirit of God coming and breaking in for everybody. It was this crazy thing. Peter gets up and preaches. And 3,000 people, the story goes, 3,000 people uh, became followers of Jesus that day because of this collective experience that happened. It was like collective spiritual experience. It was like winning the, uh, the, the Super Bowl kind of a thing, and people just wanted to be a part of it. And this is a description of it. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They even sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. Now, this is probably uh, generally highly contextualized. So this was at a feast where people from all over uh, the Mediterranean region were coming uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate this day. So that sense of a, a communal living was probably more for that time. It's not necessarily a prescription for this is what Christians should do forevermore, uh, but definitely happened during that, that time because people were moved uh, by the presence of God and compassion for each other. Well, they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I like this line in there. It said, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. You know, we live in a time right now where uh, when a lot of people think about church, they do not think good things. Uh, we have been painted with a broad brush, uh, and, and the bummer is I don't think this reflects crosswalk, but church in general in America has been painted as uh, judgmental, anti, fill in the blank, uh, and a place where you need to be perfect or you're going to be judged. And that's not what we see here. We see here a kind of community that's electric, vibrant, 
and draws people to it. People want to be associated and a part of this. And actually, what we're seeing here in this new Christian community that's, that's forming actually was part of the ancient Jewish tradition as well. Uh, in the book, i give you this quote. I've got a good set of quotes for you today. Uh, but this one I thought was really interesting, that Israel itself reversed the structure of gifts and gratitude. You remember what that was like in the Roman Empire. It was like, I'm going to do something for you so that I'm going to get you to do something for me. That was sort of the whole reciprocity idea. But there was a different way of thinking about in the Jewish tradition. In festivals, biblical scholar and professor Walter Brueggemann notes in his commentary on Deuteronomy, Israel comes to a fresh realization that its freedom is not its own work, but is a gift gladly given by Yahweh. It's a name for God. Festival is the capacity to enter a way of life in which all other claims, pressures, and realities can be suspended. So I want to sit with this just for a second because that was kind of the whole point. How many of you have been camping before? All right, finally, I ask a question and people raise their hands. That never happens. I'm like the only one ever, right? So anyway, thank you for responding to that. But one of the cool things about going camping is, is you unplug, right? Uh, unless you have a fancy RV or something, you're probably not going to be streaming anything. You're going to be hanging out at the campfire, eating delicious camp food, you know, making your s'mores. You're probably not going to have great signal, uh, so you're not going to be so much on your phone. That's the whole point of camping, right, is to unplug. Well, that's part of what's happening here, is people are leaving their normal routine of life, and they're choosing to go to Jerusalem for the period of the festival so that they can enter in together, be fully present together, uh, without the noise of everyday normal life. So, hot tip number one for your Thanksgiving dinner. Bring out an offering plate right at the very beginning before people sit down. Not to take money, but to take cell phones. Everybody puts them in, put them in the freezer. No particular reason, it just seems that's a good place to put your phone, I don't know. <laughs> but just get them away so that there's no chance or anybody, because how annoying would that be? You're going around the table, everybody's saying what they're thankful for, and you know, people are, people are like this, like they're, they're searching the internet for what, what should I be thankful for today? <laughs> Who knows, but get rid of the cell phones. That's a thing that probably does not need to happen this Thanksgiving. You're welcome. So, that's, we got that right out of, uh, of Brueggemann. Uh, but this quote goes on. In short, the festivals, the great communal, they were great communal celebrations of gratitude. They, were modeled, they modeled an alternative community, one based in abundance and joy. Festivals are a microcosm of how life should be. So the idea is they would go and do these festivals, and they would take back the principles and the feeling of their experience together and realize that that, that can be a normative way of life. Sometimes our meditation practice, there's a meditation that I've done before, uh, experienced before and led before, where you imagine a time when all of the cares of your life are gone, all of the anger that you have is gone, the people that you hate, all those things, are, justice has been served, all the physical pains you have are healed, your emotional wounds healed, uh, all you are is feeling love. That's the only thing you're experiencing. And then as we go into the meditation, you're asking yourself, well, what, what am I feeling now about 
the rest of the world, people, my life. And you know, invariably, when we soak ourselves in that space of love, it creates more loving attitudes, more loving eyes. We don't carry the same kind of stress. And that's kind of what we're getting here, is when we focus on that, uh, gratitude comes uh, pretty naturally. Uh, it goes on to talk about how uh, communion and the early church, we saw that reflected in the, in the Acts passage, uh, shows up as well. Uh, so this was a part of the Christian tradition that started borrowing from uh, some Jewish traditions. So the Eucharist, which is another uh, different rendering of where we get communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, bread and cup, Eucharist really focuses on celebration. The whole tone of it is not uh, feel bad for Jesus dying on a cross for saving sins, any of that. It's just a celebration. That's what the Eucharist is all about. The Eucharist does not really resemble pagan harvest celebrations, which were practiced elsewhere. There, in those other celebrations, the emphasis is on pleasing the gods and imploring them to send more bread and wine next year. Rather, the Christian celebration echoes those ancient Hebrew festivals in which the Jews recognized and received God's gifts of abundance and, with humility, returned gratefulness. Quote goes on. There's no need to please or plead, for God's gift is all of creation, and these gifts surround all people through all time. God does not need to be convinced to give or begged to send favor, but human beings need to be reminded that abundance is the nature of existence. The Jews went to Jerusalem two or three times a year to remember this and give thanks for it. Life is a gift. We live in a universe, we live on a planet that sustains us. Isn't that remarkable? It's remarkable. Somehow, you're still ticking. It's incredible. And you know what? I don't think, except for when Dave screwed it all up and had us focus on our breath, I don't think any of you are ever thinking about your breath. It just happens. None of you are thinking about, okay, heart, beat again, and again, please, and again, please. You're not thinking about it. It's just happening. It's incredible, this life. And if we can surround ourselves with that kind of thinking and recognize uh, also that despite what American dreams might suggest otherwise about our capacity to make it all on our own. The reality is, is we can't, and that's also wonderful. So you have clothing on your back, you have food in your belly, you drank clean water today. We're in this, this building that none of you helped build. Well, maybe one or two of you uh, contributed toward it many years ago. But for the most part, we're in a space uh, that is now just ours to enjoy. It's all gift. Life is gift. And when we think about it that way, even the grace and love of God, there's nothing we can do to earn it, make it happen, uh, that automatically changes us. At least it does for me. Uh, where we're just, our perspective shifts with that. And this community of uh, Jesus followers uh, who was around the table mattered. How they thought about things uh, mattered. Uh, and Sometimes we don't think about linguistics and semantics and the words that we choose, but even the words that Jesus used to talk about communion were conveying a deeper message. So, uh, again, from, uh, from the Grateful Book. When Jesus handed bread to his friends, he said, Receive, feast. Receive, not take. 
To receive gifts and to give thanks is the story of faith. To shift the word removes any connotation of economic exchange and ownership and reaffirms that the Eucharist is a free gift. Grace and favor are for all, to all, and with the whole world. Receiving, not taking, is the very meaning of our shared humanity, and it is the thread of community. Giving thanks is the primary communal emotion of Christianity. Uh, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing that I have not really thought a lot about, uh, that these, this is the word that Jesus used, receive, not take. Do you appreciate the difference there in what it's saying? Uh, it's one more level of this is for you just to receive. You, you don't even have to take it. You don't have to receive it. That's up to you. But it's there for you if you want it. The grace of God even. Uh, it's there for you, all over you. Uh, and if you want it, it's there. If you want to build your life on it, the love of God, all those things, they're there to receive, not to earn, uh, not to make a deal. They're just there for you to live in, to lean into, and see where it goes. And another piece of this, um, you know, that we need to appreciate, actually Lauren Haas uh, did some reading on this years ago and uh, shared this with me, uh, that this particular communion activity uh, that the disciples and the earliest followers of Jesus were known for was extremely countercultural. We, we do not think about this uh, today. When we come to church and you know, by law, we can only have uh, communion one Sunday a month, so we usually do the first. I'm kidding, it's not true. But, uh, but when we do that, it's so normal and natural for us. Uh, we don't think about how provocative, provocative it was uh, in its inception. So you had in these different communities all around the Roman Empire that were largely set up with a Greek way of thinking and a Roman way of thinking uh, that was very class-based. Uh, in those communities... Poor did not eat with the rich. Never. In those communities, and we see this reflected in uh, Jesus' uh, life, if you were a particularly religious person uh, and sort of holy, so to speak, you were not going to have unholy people around the table. And yet in these communities, uh, you had poor and rich. You had people who had their stuff together and were living in shalom and people who were just a hot mess. Uh, breaking bread together. You had men and women eating together. Uh, you had Gentiles, which is non-Jews, and Jewish people eating together. You had people who were once enemies uh, eating together. You had Jewish people and former tax collectors and foreigners, even Samaritans, eating together. They were a model of what heaven is going to be. They were a model of what shalom should look like today. Uh, and it was radical. Uh, and part of the reason why they did that is because that's who Jesus was. Jesus was radical himself. Again, we, t we talk about it with such ease because we're so familiar with the story of Jesus. But remember that after Jesus had this thing that happened to him that kicked him into his wilderness experience, which is what that tapestry is about, he comes back after the baptism, after his 40 days in the woods, uh, to sort things out. And he starts saying things differently than people would heard before. He starts behaving in ways that Jewish people are saying, you shouldn't be doing this anymore. He was issuing grace and forgiveness to people when other people were saying, you don't have the right to do that. Uh, he would go and into places he wasn't supposed to, like leper colonies. 
and he would hang out with them, even touching them, to show that they were loved by God and brought healing with them. Uh, he would go uh, into the company, uh, not, not entirely, of prostitutes to, uh, to let them know they're loved by God. So powerful were these experiences uh, that one of them we looked at uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, came and found him at a dinner party and was just weeping at his feet, right? This is the kind of radical grace that Jesus showed to everybody. It was unnerving for most people, and yet it caught. And I wonder if the reason why Jesus felt free to do that is because he empathized with the people he was trying to reach. And the reason he empathized with them is because he was a very poor Jewish carpenter in his day and age. He was not wealthy. He did not have fine things. His occupation at that time did not earn a good living. He was probably a day laborer for the most part. And so he knew what it was like to go without meals. He knew what it was like to be looked down upon from people with money. Uh, from Roman soldiers. He was probably kicked around a, a bit. Um, he didn't have a great pedigree. We, we like to make a big deal, you know, out of his pedigree. That's probably not how he experienced life. It was hard. And because he experienced the harshness of life, it gave him soft eyes toward other people. So when his mind was blown with whatever happened at that baptism experience or some other time in his life, he came back with a much broader vision. He himself was the table gatherer, right? He's the one who's bringing, even his collection of disciples were a ragtag bunch of people. He didn't go to the Ivy League school. He went to the, he went to the side of the lake and found just regular people. It's pretty profound. This empathy thing, uh, Diana Butler Bass does good work with. Uh, she says in this quote, Ultimately, gratitude is an aspect of empathy. I never put that together. To empathize means to feel into or with another, to understand and be with others emotionally. If you are thankful for something that cuts you off from others or sets people at odds, it may not be genuine gratitude. It may be an emotion birthed in fear or control. That's an interesting insight. So my guess is, is that uh, when you have Thanksgiving dinner uh, this Thursday, uh, you are probably not going to have your table uh, break into teams and make the best case uh, for their favorite presidential candidate and talk about why you're never going to vote for the other. You're not going to do that, right? Because that's going to be completely divisive. Some people, when they go around the Thanksgiving table, if, especially if you don't set them up uh, well with some tools we're going to give you today, and you just say, what are you thankful for? Um, there's a good chance that you're going to have a weird uncle or something that's going to say something stupid that is going to set other people off. You know, they're going to say something political that's just not going to land well. Uh, they're going to say something ridiculous about global things they haven't really thought through. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got tension in the room. But I like what she says here, that if we have an idea that is ultimately going to cause division, maybe that's not legitimate gratitude because it's devoid of empathy. For instance, I'm very confident because I've seen this happen many times over the years. Uh, whenever Israel's in uh, a, a mess, uh, there are some Christians who, with the best of intentions, um, they're so 
pro-Israel that Israel can never do wrong, ever. And I'm confident because I haven't searched for it, I don't need to because I know it's there. I'm confident that there are some Christians today uh, who just wish that Israel would just nuke the whole Gaza Strip and the West Bank and be done with it and feel like they're honoring God when they do that. Not aware <laughs> of the implications of that and not aware that that is a significant departure of the shalom of God that values all life. And so that's an example of a terrible thing that I hope you don't hear this Thanksgiving dinner uh, because there's no shalom in that. But Diana Butler Bass goes on and she says, gratitude connects us, doesn't divide us, even across racial, class, and national boundaries, allowing us to feel together. We reach out toward one another. We are elevated toward doing good. We might share the frenzy of gratefulness. We might find ourselves serving others or dancing in the streets. Um, you know, it's, well, at least for me, and I think for you, we can easily have our hearts broken uh, when we think about the Hamas terrorist attack uh, <clears throat> on October 7th. And I would hope that we would also have our hearts broken by the families, the children, the innocents who were wiped out uh, by Israel's reaction attack war uh, on Hamas, but incorporating so many, many, many thousands of others. Our hearts have to break. And we saw this <clears throat> in an odd way um, when America was on the other side of this. Uh, when we finally started our revenge campaign because of 9-11 and we went into Afghanistan and Iraq and we blew up a whole lot of things and a lot more lives than were taken on our shores. And an incredible story came out that there was a, there was a particular time when our troops over, uh, I think it was in Afghanistan, uh, when, when they were in trouble and their backs were against the wall they were running out of supplies and they came into a village and it was clear to the villagers <clears throat> that they had nothing and that they were running literally for their lives. The villagers in that moment did not send them away and they did not give them up uh, to who was chasing them. Instead they were taken in and they were given hospitality. That's shalom at work. That's humanity at work, seeing beyond the barriers that we have and choosing to see each other as equal human beings and wanting to love each other as equal human beings. We need more of that. As we get into this Thanksgiving uh, and as we think about what the first group of disciples were doing, their community had, wasn't just counterculture, it was all also, as I showed you, it was popular. Uh, and it was not just popular for the people who were there. Uh, they drew the favor of everyone. They were, they were uh, something to behold uh, that didn't make sense uh, to those who were looking at them. Because you'd look at this group and you'd think, why would they be happy? Uh, they're, not, they're not wealthy. They don't have much power. And yet this seems to be where the action is. Uh, I wonder if there's a hint of that that's possible for the church today if we would reshift, reset, rethink 
uh, what we're about. And Thanksgiving, actually, this week gives us an opportunity uh, to practice that. And so I want to give you an idea or two uh, to incorporate this week. Um, there's this verse that Diana Butler Bass uh, at first didn't like, but she came around uh, from the Apostle Paul. He says, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. In other words, people of faith, human beings, be thankful in all circumstances. I like how Diana Butler Bass makes this notation, um, that this is not saying be thankful for all circumstances, but be thankful in all circumstances, which means that in all circumstances, there is the potential uh, to see something to be grateful for. Even when you're in, you know, what I've called a season of suck, <laughs> uh, there is still something in the mix that is worthy of gratitude. And I'm guessing that if you had one of those uh, moments where, you know, the footprints in the stand, sand moments, you know, the poem that I'm talking about, my guess is, is that as you look back even at painful times in your life, and sometimes it's only in retrospect, you recognize that even though there were awful things that were happening that are undeniable, it was genuine suffering, that wasn't the only thing that was there. You were breathing, you're still here. There were probably others who surrounded you, uh, who helped to get you through, maybe even total strangers. And so the exercise that I have for you uh, is here, and you can go find this on my blog. Just go to Crosswalk's website, go under teachings, and scroll to the bottom, and this will show up as well as a link uh, to if this idea is terrible and you don't like this. There's a hyperlink to a website that's all about gratitude and 10 things you can do uh, to learn how to foster gratitude in your life. So I want to give you options on that. So here's the idea. Take a moment to reflect on your life over the last 12 months. What challenges have you faced? What would make your highlight real? What were the positive things? Were there any seasons of suck? And Paul encourages his audience to be thankful in all circumstances, which is not the same thing as being thankful for all circumstances. Considering your past year, what are you grateful for and why? Now, maybe at your home, uh, you do uh, like we do every year, and we play the Thanksgiving game, which is before everybody eats or while we're eating, everybody has to go around the table and say one thing that they're thankful for. Anybody done that? Okay, thank you again for raising your hand. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes that's nice. I mean, it, it at least gets people to say something. Um, but have you, ever, have you ever been around the table when that's happening and it just seems kind of hollow or shallow, you know? And maybe even for yourself, you're just like, oh, good grief. Uh, well, I'm grateful for my car keys, I guess, because they start the car. And I don't know. I guess I'm grateful for my shoelaces because they tied my shoes today. It almost becomes that kind of thing where it, it loses its meaning because we're so familiar with doing it. We're not taking it that seriously. But I wonder if, if we can change that. So this year, what I'm doing, I'm forcing my children to do this exercise. And I'm going to email this out uh, today, along with the hyperlink. If, if my ideas are terrible, they can pick from the list and do something. Because I, would, I just think it would be, well, not that we struggle for having conversation around our dinner table that's positive, but I just think it would be a much more beautiful thing if while we're eating Thanksgiving dinner, we actually talk at a more vulnerable, deep level. And we each take a turn. And even on the positive things requires a level of vulnerability. Uh, because if we choose a positive thing, 
So I don't know who's going to pick it first in our family, but maybe it's a trip somewhere pretty that we were. It's, while we may be grateful for the beautiful scenery, I already know that that really isn't what we're really grateful for. We're grateful for the time that we had with the people that we love the most. And to be able to say that out loud requires vulnerability, which men are terrible at and human beings, for the most part, struggle to do too. And for those difficult times, where that's the one thing that maybe people really need to say, is this has been a hell of a year, and I'm still in it, but I'm grateful for some of you around this table because you've gotten me through. Isn't that the kind of juicy stuff (laughs) that will make the meal just that much richer? Uh, So I encourage you um, to, to do this kind of a thing. Uh, because I think it has the potential to take us deeper. And, you know, you're not forcing anybody to do anything. If they want to just say, well, I'm grateful for, you know, the turkey this year, that's, that's fine. It's, it's, it's okay, and be grateful that they do. But, but maybe if it's, if it's just you, you know, maybe you're the only one around the table uh, who is vulnerable enough to, to actually say something of substance and deeper content. How might that shift the conversation? How might that shift the relationship? In my household um, that I grew up in, uh, where we didn't do vulnerability uh, at all, uh, when, when I do now or somebody else does, it's like people are like, what is this? What is this vulnerability thing, you know? And what it does is it, it invites more vulnerability from other people. So you just might be surprised that if you dare to share something that is deep, that requires some risk, it just might generate and encourage other people to do the same. And you might walk away from Thanksgiving dinner this year, uh, having learned some things about each other, having really empathized with each other because you listened to each other on a deeper level, and you might actually walk away much more grateful because you did. The other thing I'm giving you, uh, and this was handed out to you, uh, wasn't put on the table already, Uh, but it was handed out to you as you came in. On one side of this half sheet, it had uh, some notable quotables. You've got a few scripture verses. You've got a quote from Thomas Jefferson. You've got one from Abraham Maslow, uh, the great psychological theorist. Uh, You have a great quote from uh, one of these quotes, I think, that I shared uh, from Diana Butler Bass from her book, Grateful. And on the other side, uh, I am giving you a Thanksgiving blessing. Uh, because sometimes when it comes to prayer uh, before Thanksgiving uh, meal, maybe you're going to somebody else's house and they never think of it. It's just like I, they don't even think about a prayer. Well, maybe this is something you can take with you and say, hey, if you don't have anything, what do you think about this? Um, and some of you are just really uncomfortable praying, don't know how to do that very comfortably, especially out loud in front of other people. You usually defer to rub-a-dub-dub, thank you for the grub, thank you, Lord, and then you're going <laughs> away you eat. Um, this gives you something to work with. And I have a little secret for you. This is a little, little trick you can play on your Christian friends around that dinner table. This beautiful blessing, and I think it's a beautiful blessing. That's why I copied it out of the book and, and wrote it up for you. It is written by an atheist. An atheist wrote this beautiful Thanksgiving blessing filled with gratitude. Now, it's possible that some of you around the Thanksgiving dinner table, you may have people in your family or friends that join you for dinner 
and they'll hear about this blessing that you want to uh, offer, and they'll look up the guy's name. Uh, they may find the right person, I'm not sure, but let's say they find out that the author is, in fact, an atheist, and they're offended and don't want to pray a, an atheist prayer. So here's the pro tip for you to turn this prayer into a Christian prayer. First, you start off by saying, Dear Lord, and then read the blessing. You just made it a Christian prayer. And finally, if you want to make it a conservative Christian prayer, once you get to the end of the blessing, just say, in Jesus' name, amen, and you've got it wrapped. So I have given you <laughs> an, an atheist prayer, if that's more fitting for your audience, and I've helped you turn it into a Christian prayer <laughs> to make it work for your Christian friends around the table. But it's a beautiful prayer that I hope will stimulate some thanksgiving and appreciation for all that we have. That's what I have for you today, and I hope that something today uh, will help you take this week to a different level, that I hope that you have genuine community around somebody's table, uh, if not your own this week, because joy is meant to be done in community, and when we're together in that kind of gratitude space, something greater than the sum of its parts can happen, and I pray that for you today. Before we get into our Lord's Prayer that was taught to us, which is really a model of way, living in the world. Uh, I want to have just a moment of silence uh, to give you time to sort out and listen for what uh, is your take home today. So if you'll join me, close your eyes, take a deep breath. My question for you is, what, what is the thing today? What's the thing that has stuck with you? It doesn't have to be from the teaching. It can be from any part of today's service. What's the gift that you've been given today from our time together? God, we always come into service at Crosswalk with some expectation but I don't think we could have been prepared for today. For the different elements? For the 60s rock music? <laughs> for a meditation that encouraged us to recognize suffering and find that that's actually valuable? To hear some quotes from a great author on gratitude and to learn that we're a part of a long, long tradition that sees all of life and creation itself as a gift. I don't know what is stuck for us today, to a person anyway, but I am sure to a person, God, that you, you love us and that you gift us and that it's there for the taking, and it always will be. And that if we have presence of mind, we can meet you in this gift. And so I pray that it is so. God, as we think about this week, that uh, hopefully will be wonderful, but is also uh, a time of tension for some families and friends who get together folks that don't always see eye to eye, I pray that uh, we will be guided 
by the heartbeat of the prayer that was taught to us by Jesus, which is a model for wanting more and more shalom to come into the world, for us to be sensitive uh, to those that we're with, that have soft eyes, eyes of grace, that more grace would abound. Congregation, join me as we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for coming today. Next week we wrap up the Grateful series. Some cool stuff about that. Some surprising things. Hope you have a fantastic time this week. Uh, go deep in your gratitude, and we'll see you back here Sunday. Thanks for coming.